0: Uh, some of you were really concerned that somebody came into church and went into the office. You were, I could feel the tension. <laughs> you guys, well, that's so uh, I might have shared this story. Have you heard about the elephant at the circus who's, who was tethered to the circus trainer by a little skinny rope? So this massive couple thousand pound elephant would not run away. And when they looked, all there was was a little rope on their feet that the elephant could just snap in a second. So somebody asked the the circus trainers, how do you keep the elephant? How come the elephant doesn't run away? It's so strong. And so he said it's very easy. In the beginning, when the elephant is small, they would tie the heaviest metal chain and shackle it. So the elephant tries to move, but it just gets defeated. And so it's locked in. And as it gets bigger, they kind of move to a lighter chain. And then when it gets bigger, it becomes psychologically ingrained that it will never break free, so they move to a rope, and eventually they move to an even little string, and the elephant just doesn't move because it's been hindered. That, my friends, is enslavement. That is the enslavement that some of us, we're not, we have the capability to be free, but we just don't break out of it because we have come to believe we are hopelessly locked in. And so can you imagine Apostle Paul realizing that Jesus Christ has given us his freedom from bondage of sin, from fear of condemnation, from being under the law and requirements that the Bible tells us to do, that we've been freed from that, but the Christians are going back to that. It's like an elephant that's been freed, it's a shackled and so this is more than just a theology. This is, just, this is the reality that a lot of us live in. Some of us are living Christian lives, I think, hindered and still enslaved by believing I need to be good to perform so that God would receive me and accept me. I haven't gone to church enough. I haven't been good enough. And this is why the gospel is good news. Jesus Christ is sufficient and has done all that is required And we get to receive that benefit. And so Galatians 5 begins with this verse. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In our small group on Wednesday we realized that verse is the summary of Galatians. For freedom, for what? For freedom Christ has set us free. What is the Christian life? It's freedom. We're going to talk a little bit more about what that freedom means. But the Christian life, it's a life of freedom. Who's done it? Christ has set us free. That's the gospel. Religion says, for freedom, you must strive and work to do this, and God will receive you. The gospel of Jesus Christ says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. And so there is our simple leading. What is my foundation of my faith? It is not in my performance and how good I've been. None of us have been good. We're terrible, wretched sinners. But Christ, the sinless Lamb of God, has died and rose again and paid the penalty of our sin. So for freedom, Christ has set us free. The next part, so stand firm. Therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back to it. And so today I want to talk about... um, the ways we kind of get enslaved, again, in the modern days. Because, again, I don't think many of you struggle with the issue with Galatians. None of you are going, Pastor Co. I'm trying to read the Old Testament and keep the Old Testament law so that God would accept me. I don't think that's an issue. But the way this may enslave us, I think, come in these two ways. So I want to talk about them. Uh, one is called legalism. Have you, can you raise your hand if you heard that term, legalism? And the other one is this, the other opposite, cheap grace. How many of you have heard of cheap grace? And so it's these two spectrums. Legalism is the belief that through our excellent obedience and work, we are accepted by God and saved. Now, theologically, no good Presbyterian will believe that, but we live like that. It is through my good works that God is pleased and accepts me. And when we mess up, Oh, boy, I don't know if God loves me anymore. So legalism has other things. We'll talk about that. And cheap grace, as defined by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says, it's preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. Hey, I want to be a part of this church, but don't tell me what to do. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Benefit of Christianity without the cost involved. So the gift of God is free, but the pursuit of Christ and to become a follower of Jesus, it does have a cost. Not You don't have to pay the cost for your acceptance, but since we have been freed, we live this out. So let me talk about that. And let me start with legalism with this way. This one's easy. In college... I was part of a community called the Korean Christian Fellowship. And there were about 200 of us. We would meet every Thursday night for worship. That's actually how I met my wife, Kathy. Uh, She saw me and she was like, who is that stunning man? And I said, I'm here. Um, True story, not. Anyway, so we would worship every Thursday night. And it was fantastic. It was good praise, good message. And what I didn't know at the time, though, it was saturated with legalism. They, they meant well. They, they proclaimed Jesus Christ, died for us, rose again. But they, they lived out that Christianity was very legalistic. Let me give you some examples. They would require you to come to early morning prayer. If you don't come, they would be judgment and ostracizing. Like, how can you miss that? Don't you love Jesus? And so you feel like, oh, I, I don't want to miss Sunday early morning prayer. Um, if you drank alcohol, they would look at you with utter disdain and say, how can you be a Christian? And it was so burdened that you had to walk in their ways, believe what they believed, follow their rules, and it was a policing where there was little joy and grace and a lot of enforcement. And so, so Kathy and I, we separately became, fell fully into it, and every Sunday in our senior year, we would have six hours of meeting every Sunday night for eight months. Six o'clock to eight o'clock was our officers' meeting, prayer, Bible study. Eight o'clock to 10 o'clock was our council meeting to plan out this KCF prayer meeting. And then 10 o'clock to midnight, we would have a meeting about Bible study that we would teach that week. Six hours, no dinner. And then when you're tired, they would say, suffer for the Lord. And so we're like, yes, we'll suffer for the Lord. And so when you... Look at it, it's like, wow, they're committed and loyal. But when you step back, you start realizing there is no grace. There, there is this expectation, this burden, man-made rules. That Christ is not proclaimed, your performance and your behavior is. Now, I don't want to knock all of it because I actually grew by the grace of God in some of his providential ways. I read the whole Bible and... I memorized about 50 verses. It was, it was good times. But the way it was enforced was very militant. And a lot of people fell away from church during that time because they were so oppressed. That's legalism. There's no gospel in it. The hero is not Jesus. The hero is your performance. So legalism is this achievement to follow the word of God, to follow. Paul says this in Galatians Two, five, two. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you're going to go the route of trying to follow the Old Testament law, you are basically saying Christ's work has no, in the other versions, no profit for you. It has no value. You depend on yourself. You don't need Christ then. Do you understand what you're saying, Galatians? And so... This root of legalism removes grace, according to Paul. You have severed yourself from Christ, and you have fallen away from grace, verse 4. And so grace living is entirely a different life. You are under burden living. So can you imagine um, if we became a church where we said, hey, how are you? Welcome. Let's sit together for five minutes. Tell me how your week went. Where were your sins, and where did you fail, and where did you do good? And there was like a policing And so Paul is talking about a community that is grace-centered. Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. Did you catch that? Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So he's saying religious work or no religious work, they don't benefit your acceptance by God. So if you think you're going to be accepted by God because you're sitting in church, Paul is saying, no, So what does, he continues, but only faith working through love. And what I find is people of genuine faith, they naturally flow into God's work. But we don't do God's work to become accepted by God. So religious activity and pushing that to say, you better be good with this or else is this no-love Legalism. Paul's abhorrence towards the this Galatian false teachers is so, like, severe. He says a little east, a little leaven will affect the whole thing. He's so angry at them. He says they will receive their due judgment. And then, you know, he says this, this is like PG-13. If you're going to preach circumcision, I hope you will go all the way and emasculate yourself entirely. And that's very strong. So you could tell Paul is so seething at this because they have corrupted the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ is our all in all. And so for whatever being, reason, um, religious organizations, and I I could see it as a pastor, power or justice, self-righteousness and piety, it allows us to get distorted and we start judging and we start criticizing, we start ostracizing those who don't look like us. So even in modern-day hot-topic issues, um, I share this, and I'm a, I believe in the Word of God. I believe that in God's Word for marriage, and, and I believe in sexuality, that there's deviance in both hetero and homosexual. But we talked about this. I wonder, I asked some people, I get it when it comes to, like, homosexuality. But what Paul is saying here is if a homosexual person becomes saved, by faith in Jesus Christ, do they need to convert to heterosexual to get to heaven? And these kind of false teachers would say, of course. And what Paul would say is, you're adding on to the work of Christ. It starts with Christ. He does the work. And the fruit that the Holy Spirit works, the Holy Spirit will do it. But if we say to a group of people who became saved, now... You've accepted Christ. That's great. Now you got to do these things in order for God to truly accept you. We are following the false teachers. Um, you know, Romans chapter 2, verse 4 has this. Paul says that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's the kindness of God that causes sinners to draw near. Not fear, not guilt, not condemnation, not judgment. And so when you ask people, surveys have shown, why do you not go to church anymore? Guess what the number one reason is? They always tell me what they're against rather than what they're for. We have become great at telling the world what we're against. We're against everything. But we've got to tell them what we're for. We're for God who has come to redeem sinners, starting with me, who I'm the chief of sinners, as Paul says. This humility That good news is that God didn't just come for the good people who found religion and go to church, but he came for the sickest of people. So legalism has no power, but Christ, his good news does. So this is legalism. It's this impounding and forcing and checking up on and it's very prevalent. And some of you are living with that enslavement. Some of you are wondering, I never have this peace with God. And in that, Paul says, surrender. Christ be your all in all. Well, let's go to the opposite spectrum. So, cheap grace. So, he he says this in verse 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So, this other spectrum is we're free? Yes, we have freedom. And so, your freedom, your call to freedom, yes, only do not use it as an opportunity. For the flesh. Verse 1 reminded us that Christ has set us free. So once and for all, Christ has done something to set you and I free. So can you say, I am free, if you're a Christian? Ready? One, two, three. Come on, one more time. One, two, three. I am free. That's who Christians are. What are we free from? Again, sin, bondage of the law, enslavement, condemnation from God. We're free from the fear of all these things. But Paul says, do not use that freedom for your flesh, though. Do not use that freedom to do whatever you desire. And so, in America, we have freedom, yes? Yes? <laughs> I am in America, yes. Do we have freedom to go to my neighbor's house and steal his car? Do I have freedom to go make threats at people that I don't like? I'm gonna kill you, and I'm gonna come in. No, you get arrested for that. I could say I don't like the Dodgers. I have freedom to speech to say I don't like the San Francisco Giants. But I don't have freedom to say words where I could threaten one another. So freedom, what is freedom? So doing whatever your flesh desires, Paul says, is not the freedom Christ set you free to do. In fact, ironically, that's enslavement. Hey, I'm addicted to alcohol, I'm addicted to drugs, I'm addicted to pornography, let me do whatever I please. Is that person free? Ironically, they're enslaved to an addiction. And when you try to stop them, what happens? Why are you messing with what I desire? So freedom, even in the secular world, we know it's not freedom to do what we want. So here's a good test of our freedom, Paul says. Do your actions express love in service to one another. That's a good sign you're living out freedom in Christ. Another test, do your actions and words lift up rather than devour one another, as Paul says. So freedom in Christ, it benefits the community. It brings life to one another. It's not whatever you desire selfishly. There's something that God programmed and wired in this good news to be salt and light in the community. We are free to live according to Christ. That is the freedom. We're free from sin to live according to the way Christ has called us to live. Thanks be to God. So, cheap grace is it leads people to say, hey, if God forgives me for everything, then I could do whatever I want. So, the reason why a lot of us get hindered by God is not that God is this joy kill, God is the most exciting joyful, amazing being, and I, we've only tapped into a sliver of it. But the reason why people feel God is obstructive, you know why? Because God may ruin what I'm enslaved to, that I enjoy. And God always wants to bring good, we want to hold on to the evil, and we think that's God taking away freedom. So let me use it this way. I have a wife, and if my wife forgives me always, as God forgives me, that's good, right? I have a wife who forgives so, me. You all know people who forgives you. Your friends always forgive you. But if I'm a husband who keeps hurting her over and over and over again, I have girlfriend after girlfriend, steal our money. I, I wound her all the time. I said, well, you're going to forgive me anyway, right? You're a Christian. What do you call me? Am I a husband in this relationship that is just a loving, faithful man? No, that's called Abuse. And so cheap grace says just because you'll forgive me doesn't mean gives you a license to reject, rebel, and hurt, and do what you wish. And so Paul's use of freedom here is for, again, free from the bondage of sin, free from the bondage of requiring, fulfilling the law, which you and I are doomed, and free from the condemnation of God. And that comes through Jesus. So uh, Peter Marshall, he said this prayer before the U.S. Senate. And let me read his prayer. He he reads, Lord Jesus, thou who art the way, the truth, and the life, hear us as we pray for the truth that shall make us all free. Teach us that liberty is not only to be loved, but also to be lived. Liberty is too precious a thing to be buried in books. It costs too much to be hoarded. Get this, help us to see that our liberty is not the right to do as we please, But the opportunity to please, to do what is right. Jesus Christ has freed us to do and live rightly in the eyes of God. That's freedom. I get to serve God. And so Christianity is neither this legalism, you better do as we say, nor license. Paul says this. So he goes on, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So what is the way? So it's neither this strict living nor this loose living. What is it? It is a walk. It is a walk by the Spirit, with the Spirit. It is a surrendered walk to Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, He said, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You kind of see Paul adopting that here. There's two tensions around you. The flesh desires this, but the spirit opposes this, and they are diametrically opposed to each other. And this battle for Christians is in us. And so the reason why we have to gather for worship and for brothers and sisters to be transparent and to meet is because we can't do this by ourselves. That's why he gives us a church. That's why he gives us the word. That's why he gives us the Holy Spirit. So it is not individual living. It is this living in the community, in the kingdom of God. And it comes through surrender. Um, it's interesting. He says the work of the flesh, and he, he doesn't say work of the spirit. But what does he call it? He says the fruit of the spirit. So one is what we do. The other is what the spirit does in us. And that's what changes us. And so... Old Testament has a better analogy and a visual, and I love visuals. Um, This picture is in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 18, that God puts the responsibility of our transformation and walking with him on him. We just have to surrender to him. And the way he does it is, he says, you are the clay and I am the potter. Tell me, what is the job of the clay? What's, what's our job of the clay? Just be available, be soft, be moldable, and let the potter shape you. What a brilliant analogy that God uses. Let me read it. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So Jeremiah went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel, this potter. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. So he was transforming it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. What does walking by the Spirit mean? we allow God to be the potter and we surrender ourselves and place ourselves so he could mold us. He could fashion us. He could grow fruit out of us. So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control is not what you're working on. It's what develops when the potter, the Holy Spirit in whom we abide with, develops that in us. So Paul says, verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passion and desires. That's the life of surrender. The crucifixion here is ongoing. So our job is to do that, and that's the way of the gospel. So it's neither your work nor your passive nothingness. It is an active surrender at the hands of God, and he grows us and we say praise be to god who saved us and who moves us so let me end with this to give a visual um there's a church right now that has been renowned and i don't want to use their name and they're on the verge of collapse because they've experienced scandal after scandal after scandal by these pastors and so i looked up to them the world looked up to them We, we we sang their songs And so all this news is coming out about cover-up, rape, alcohol abuse, power, control, money. And so the temptation in the world, they're relishing this. This church is so big. And they were all hypocrites. And so the church people might look at them and go, oh, I can't believe it happened. The world could say, oh, good, showing them for who they really are. And I was thinking... And I was kind of wrestling with this as I was watching a documentary on them. And I think the self-righteous legalistic people, you know what they would say? They should have been more careful. I would never do anything stupid like that. How can you, how can you drink alcohol and do that? What, how stupid can you be? What kind of Christians are you? Implying, I would not do that. I follow the rules. And then the other people, the cheap grace people would say you know what, we all do it. It's human, you know, it's no big deal. It's bound to happen. Like just, they're just living out their life. And I think Paul would say, I would never say neither of those. Because what gospel would say is, what they did was wrong. But here's the gospel. What they did, that potential, that sin that's in them, is in all of us that potential to abuse, to neglect, that same disease is in every single one of us. So neither would we look down nor whether we let it go, we would turn that moment to say our only hope is in Jesus Christ. And so it's neither condoning nor condemning, but it brings us back to the gospel to say, Lord Jesus This is your church. These are your people. They still need your grace. They still need to crucify their flesh day by day. That is how we stand. And that is how we are soaked in your spirit. Amen? And this is why Paul says in Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Good, rule-abiding discipline will save me. Yes? No. No. Who will save me from this body of death? Oh, it's, 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 there's no solution. It's just the way I am. No. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is our salvation. He is our hope. And the wretched sinners that are in all of us. That is why we say, good news, thank you, God, for Christ. And it's neither legalism, it's neither cheap grace, it's the good news of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. God, i got to be the first to confess, there is that nature in me to look down and to condemn, to judge, to see others and say, how can you be so stupid? I realize I've done the same things I I have the potential for the same things and and that self-righteousness really blinds us from not only receiving grace but giving grace. And so Lord, we thank you for the gospel that frees us. We thank you for this good news that reminds us that we are so hopelessly lost that we can't rescue ourselves, but we're not hopeless. We thank you for your son. We thank you, God, for this gift. We thank you for Jesus who fulfilled the law perfectly. And in him, we have freedom. We thank you for the freedom we have from the bondage of that expectation that we have to be perfect on our own power. And rather, we have received righteousness in your eyes because Jesus' blood covers us. So we thank you. And as we journey our way to Easter and Good Friday, we realize how precious you are. We, we will always submit ourselves. We will surrender ourselves to your hands. God, mold us. Work us. You are the potter. We are the clay. And we close with a prayer you taught us as we say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.